You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome in once again to the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who is a retired Army Sergeant and now an inspirational speaker. When I say speaker, I mean volumes of speaking. So we'll get to him coming up in just a moment. want to remind you guys, please continue to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we are slowly working our way up the top 100 Apple Podcasts. We want to continue that rise. We need your help, though. So it's very simple. It doesn't have to be a long review. But wherever you listen to Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. Also, a reminder about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. The same thing on your smartphone. It'll direct you to the app. Uh, so all of your credit card information is saved, and you can do all your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. As well, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. And if you're watching this, you're watching it on our YouTube channel, so make sure you hit that subscribe button. As well, you may be viewing this on the Killcliff app, killcliff.com, or Killcliff's YouTube channel. Make sure you're following Killcliff everywhere as well. Uh, let's get to this week's guest, who is a retired Army sergeant who spent four years in the Army, one deployment to Afghanistan where he was wounded and actually blown up twice. After his injuries, uh, he left the active duty uh, and left the Army to become an inspirational speaker and author. And when I say speaker, I mean over a half a million people in 42 states, seven countries on four continents. So this is his passion, and that is talking to soldiers and helping them. His latest books are Redeployed and the Resilience Booklet, and he is Brian Fleming joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Brian, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Um thousands of hours of speaking. So uh, this is where you, you have landed after your career. Uh, but the very beginning started in the Army and how and why? Well, I joined the Army straight out of high school in 2000, uh, 2003 out of Miami, Florida. And, uh, you know, it was just a couple of years after 9-11. You know, the towers were hit. Washington was hit. And, uh, you know, terrorists in the Middle East had claimed responsibility. And uh, I had friends who had lost family in New York City that day. And, uh my senior year came along. I was going to go to college and become a doctor. And I walked into the guidance counselor's office and I, I switched up anatomy and physiology for swimming and weight training out for AP physics and some BS home ec class for some other class. I'd probably need calculus. And I said, Hey, I'm going to war anyway. I'd rather be strong and fit, uh, you know, than learn physics right now. And so got away with that somehow joined the army as infantry, uh, straight out of high school, went to Fort Benning. So when you say straight out of high school, you contracted before graduation, huh? Uh, it was right around right the gra- it was right around graduation time when it went through, and then I went. You know, I graduated in May, and I left for uh, Fort Benning in August. Any resistance from the family? No, no. My brother he had, he had joined the Marine Corps already, and um, you know he was actually two weeks out from graduating boot camp in San Diego uh, when nine eleven happened, and so my my mother was already sort of prepared for what I was doing and she supported me all the way. You know, thinking back on it, uh, with nine 11 being the impetus for your signing, do you feel that, you know, if nine 11 hypothetically never happened, you would never be in the military? 
you know, I don't know if I would have went in. I mean, growing up as a kid, my brother and I, we always played Rambo in the woods. Every stick was a rifle. You know, we grew up watching Rambo and Commando and Schwarzenegger, Stallone, Predator. And uh, yeah, it was just a sign of things to come. So I don't I don't know if I would have made that that push over the fence if something like 9-11 had not taken place. Who knows? Do you think that you were the, the guy who wanted to uh, do all the studying up on basic training ahead of time? Or are you just kind of going into this whole thing blind? A little of both. I'll tell you what it really was, though. You know, I, I grew up and I really had no male role model. Um, my father was always gone. He was never around. And so there was a big part of me. I learned this at about 30 years old, about 30, 31. I realized this. Um, and I'm 36 now. But I realized though one of the big reasons I joined the military wasn't just 9-11, but I realized years later, I'm talking 10, 12 years later, was that there was a part of me that needed to know like that I was a man. Not that going to war makes you a man, uh, but I needed something in me to affirm me as like I'm I'm part of something. I'm, you know, I've got what it takes. And there were a lot of unanswered questions in me from a young age uh, that had not been answered. And joining the military uh, really, really helped with that. It's interesting because there is a lot of that masculinity, right, uh, in in the service uh, and a lot of people who sign up, particularly those who all sign up after the post-9-11 world, you know, uh, there's always this measure of, can I take it? Can I handle it? Right. Like it's, it's the old sort of comparison to baseball, getting called up to the big leagues, right? You know, you do all this training and you want to be called up to see if your, your medal is up to the task. Um, is that something that was more predicated on youth or is that something that you believe, you know, is, is a legitimate sort of fabric of just for lack of a better term, being a male? I think it's in all men, but I think there's such a lack of it in our society. I mean, you go to Africa, there's still tribes where you got to go kill a friggin' lion with a spear and then you're a man. Then you can marry the guy's daughter. Like right. there ain't nothing like that in America. I mean, you know, you, if somebody gets the order wrong at the local, you know, coffee shop, you know, someone loses their mind, you know, <laughs> let alone knowing if they're a man or not. You know, nowadays, nobody even knows if they I mean, people actually are confused, apparently, if what from what they are. And I'm not criticizing anyone, but we are living. My point is we're in an extremely confused society. Not that everybody is. But there's a segment and there's a voice, a narrative in our society that's a confusing one from what was I born as to am I a man? Do I have what it takes? And when a, when a, when a man or male, a male person, especially a teenager, young adult, whatever the age, whenever they go through their life, not having something to cling to and say, I'm affirmed, I'm a man in this tribe, I'm, I've got what it takes, man, there's a, there's a huge gap in the soul of that person. And if that goes unfilled, what we end up with are a bunch of uninitiated older men who are just a bunch of old men, little boys and old men's bodies. And, you know, that is what destroys society. It, it breaks down the family unit and then it just gets passed on. And I've been lucky since being in the military and after getting out, especially to have some extremely good men and women, but some very good men come into my life and help me along. I never would have gone the route I did after the military without the people, especially the men that came into my life. All right. More on that uh, here in a little bit, but let's go back to basic training. What was the hardest part for you? I just wanted to, I just wanted to get to Afghanistan, <laughs> 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 you know, 15 and a half weeks of, you know, infantry training and uh, you know, Fort, Fort Benning is, a, you know, it's 110 during the summer and yeah, it's, it is. you know, negative 20 in the, in the winter. But there was nothing particularly difficult about it for you? 
I mean, I was in I was in the killer shape. I was in the best shape of my life. Oh, I mean, really? I went there. I was I lived in Miami at the time when I went in. I was running on the beach four or five miles a day. I was knocking out my push ups, my pull ups. I mean, I had to be the PT test to beat. I mean, before I ever went there, because the one thing I wasn't going to be is that guy who's holding everybody up, and and I wasn't. But uh, you know, I, I made sure that I prepared for it. So after basic training uh, in in infantry school, you're headed to Tenth Mountain, right, Fort Drum. Well, the first time, uh, my first unit was second ID over in uh, Camp Casey, Korea. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was that 19-year-old kid who they give a machine gun to. And uh, it was it was like a kid in a candy store, man. You know, I got assigned an N249 saw for a year. And uh, it was every dream of my childhood watching Rambo and Commando and Predator. I-, I wanted to be like that guy in Predator who was mowing down the jungle with the minigun. You know, that was like my first time on the range. I was like, I just can't wait. And I got kicked in the head by a first sergeant, too, for doing that, but it was worth it. <laughs> uh, how does a 19-year-old kid from Miami uh, handle Korea? Well, the summers are a lot like Miami. Okay. Uh, I, I'm originally from Michigan, so I was very used to the cold. Uh, and, you know, Korea's cold is like Alaska. It's it's Arctic. It gets down to, like, I think the coldest it got was about negative 35, uh, somebody recorded. All right. So you, the other experience of Korea is – that whole, you know, Asian flavor, it's the other side of the world. I mean, the adjustment for that was was easy for you? Was it difficult? Did you miss home? It was exciting for me. I was single. I was 19. And uh, I was looking forward to seeing the world. And when the Army tells you they'll let you see the world, they're not lying. But they won't send you to the best places. No. But Korea, I chose Korea. And uh, really? I lived there, um, not married and uh, with no kids. Not many and people choose Korea, though. Come back. What's that? Not many people choose Korea. Like it's it's usually I remember on active duty when guys would get purse grams for for Korea, they would shred them immediately like they never got them and hope that the army would forget they had to go. Well, I didn't know any better. Number 1, <laughs> and number 2, I love traveling to different countries. And so that kind of worked for me. How long you're in Korea? A year and then you move where? Yeah, 1 year and then I was assigned to the 10th Mountain Division, okay. which which oddly on my orders it said 10th Mountain Division Fort Polk, Louisiana. So I took them back to my, uh, you know, the person who does them. And I said, hey, um, the branch manager, I said, hey, these are wrong. And they said, no, Private Fleming, you're wrong. You're going to Louisiana, 10th Mountain Division. I said, that's in New York. They said, no, there's a new, a new brigade, 4th Brigade starting in Fort Polk, Louisiana. And, you know, that was the first time I ever learned about military intelligence. You're starting a mountain brigade of a, a light infantry mountain warfare brigade in the swamp. And then you're going to send us to a mountainous country called Afghanistan. That's how it worked. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now it's funny. I, I just saw a, a, like a video meme today. You know, those um, videos with the sad music where they hold up the signs instead of speaking and they just pull one off over and over again to, to put all the words. I, one of them said today, it said, people say the army is the dumbest branch. And instead of the individual moving the first sign, he took all the ones out from underneath. So every time he took down a piece of paper, it just said, the, people say the army is the dumbest branch. Um, I, I found it rather comical because there was so much truth to it. I mean, it's, uh, yes, the idea that yeah. we're going to start a mountain brigade in, in the swamps of Louisiana to go to Afghanistan makes a ton of sense. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, also, Louisiana, really hot and really sticky and really gross. And Fort Polk is about as miserable as you can get. Yeah, I've heard other people say places are worse, but I've been to those other places, and they're at least equivalent. Yeah, it's 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 pretty gnarly down there. The, but I'll tell you this. The food is good, and the people are very good people in Louisiana. And so I love that about the place. I just – I hate the weather. Yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. Yeah. So how quickly from your time there do you end up in Afghanistan? 
I arrived in December of 05, and I'm sorry, 04 in Louisiana, deployed in March of 06. So I was there okay. almost a year and a half before deploying, and I was happy to get those orders. They got me out of Louisiana. What? Uh, when was the first time you heard about a deployment in Afghanistan? What was your reaction? Of like that we were getting orders? To yeah, go? that you were going to go. Well, we knew for about a year. We knew when we arrived there in early 2005 that we were going to be going in the next 12 to 15 months. And so that was no secret. It was just a matter of getting that unit stood up and then, okay, here's where we're going now. Uh, you know, it was everything I joined for and trained for, and it was time to get on the playing field and play the game. And so, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't any real surprise. I was newly married, married three months before I left. But, you know, my wife and I knew that going into it. What was the, the train-up like? Because typically, I mean, it's, it's just for any unit that's not brand new, you know, the train-up is pretty intense. Was it equally or doubly as tough, I should say, because you're a brand-new brigade that has never had anybody together before? Well, I mean, we, we had some very good NCOs that were assigned to my platoon. We were the Battalion Scout Sniper Platoon. And, you know, we had, you know, each of our our NCOs at that time, you know, they were already combat vets, our LT, you know, you know, he hadn't deployed yet, but you know, he was, he was a, I mean, he was a man's man lead by example, had his Ranger tab was ready to get on it led by example. And so we had some pretty darn good leadership uh, who was very good at what they do. All right. You find out when you're going to Afghanistan, they tell you where did you even care? Uh, you know, they really didn't tell us exactly where until we sort of got there or when we were on the way, we sort of figured out where we were going to be based out of. And that's Kandahar? Uh, we arrived in Kandahar, but then okay. we were uh, based out of Fob Lagman, which is in, outside of Kalat and RC East, about an hour and a half or two north of Kandahar, uh, straight up Highway 1. Gotcha. What's your mission when, that you're told when you get there? <laughs> well, it's like every other military thing, uh, hurry up and wait, sit tight, and then, you know, different missions but i mean our primary mission was was uh reconnaissance but we were uh, you know being a scout platoon but you know we were also sent out on you know di- different raids and different you know backing up the special forces group if they need extra firepower or uh the main mission was really just going out and identifying enemy presence which all that really means is hey you go out there and if you get shot at or blown up it means they're there and uh you know we encountered some of that yeah um, let the enemy find you. Yeah. Good plan. Um, so as far as the operational tempo, uh, because at that time in Afghanistan, it wasn't really the height of their violence in 06. Like it was actually sort of a lull, um, comparatively speaking. I I didn't know this at the time, but after I got out in 07, I had been told, I don't know how true it is, but that 06 was the worst fighting since the war began. And then 07, after I had gone out, actually got worse but i don't i don't have any sources on that but uh it was interesting yeah i mean uh, i was in i remember thinking i was in iraq for the first half of 06 or you know first third um and i remember just seeing reports out of afghanistan and comparatively speaking i remember thinking of you know i'd almost rather be there because it seems like it's a lot more survivable i mean in 05 to 06 was the height of the violence in iraq hence the surge that came in 07 yeah. Um, especially, you know, the IEDs and everything else. So again, I wasn't on the ground at the time, but I just remember, um, you know, really 2009, 2010 was really when a, a lot of the, we resurged in Afghanistan and brought a lot more troops in because there was a, a, a rise in the violence. So, you know, I wasn't yeah, trying absolutely. to, 
Yeah. yeah, I wasn't, you know, again, you would know better than I would. I just, that was what I was recalling. So I guess my question in general was about the operational tempo and just kind of what it was like day to day. Yeah, you know, day to day, it was just everything was different. I mean, you go out on a mission, I mean, every day or two, and then sometimes you, you'd be out for a month at a time. Other times you'd be out for a week or two at a time. You'd have a couple of days off maybe or one day off and then get pulled back. It was pretty sporadic. Um, I never quite found a pattern to it. Did you think that there was sort of purpose in all this or did you even care? To the war? Yeah, it's kind of kind of to the mission. I mean, did you feel like you were making headway? Was were things going successfully? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, I feel like they were. I mean, you know, we got a couple of our trucks, you know, a few of our trucks blown up and things like that. Thankfully, everyone came home uh, alive, though you know, a number of us got wounded during that deployment. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I never really felt like I was lost or what are we doing here? I mean. You know, since 9-11, you know, and Taliban claiming responsibility and, you know, it's like operating out of Afghanistan. I didn't have any problem with why I was there. Makes sense. Uh, a lot of people in Iraq, not so much, but again, different discussion for. Yeah, for different, different war, day. different. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I'm not the expert on that for sure. I, yeah, I wasn't there. Let's talk about your injury uh, and what happened to you specifically. Um, kind of take me through the events leading up to it. Uh, beginning of that day, was it a normal day? Was anything out of ordinary, out of place? Yeah, you know, the first vehicle I was in that was blown up uh, took place about a month after we arrived in country on April 18th of 2006. Uh, I was in the backseat of the lead vehicle of about five or six of our gun trucks. We were out in the Argandam uh, Argandam Valley, and um, it was about 7 in the morning. We'd been been perched on a mountaintop. Um, You're close to a mountaintop. You know, we'd found a place for our vehicles the previous night. We'd been out there several days. And sun was coming up and we started driving down this little dirt road, went up over a hill, came down and right where it flattened out, uh, there's a double stack of anti-tank mines pressure plate. Um, we ran it over, our back tire did, uh, blew up the vehicle, set it on fire, threw it about 10 to 20, uh, 10, 15 feet to the side of the road. And, um, you know, didn't really know what happened at first. The first, the, the best way to describe being in a vehicle like that is sort of like smoke went everywhere really fast and you didn't hear anything i didn't and so uh didn't really know what happened at first and then after after vehicle sort of landed uh we realized kind of what had happened after we got our wits about us where were you seated Um, in the vehicle i was in the back seat behind the driver Mm -hmm. and and the tire on the passenger side back tire is the one that ran it over and so you know the guy in the other back seat you know he was a he had had the wind knocked out of him he was kind of hunched forward he wasn't really responsive. Vehicles on fire, and you know, my gunner's laying next to me, and uh, me and the you know, I was a team leader, and my squad leader was up front. We're checking there. Is everyone okay? Is everyone okay? Everyone appears okay, uh, except for the guy in the ba- other back seat. So I open my door and get out, and I ran around to the other side, opened his door, told him hurry up, get out, let's go, uh, and he really didn't respond. So I dragged him out. Um, the squad leader in the front. Uh, the TC, uh, his, his door was jammed shut from the blast. So he climbed through the back and out that same door and, uh, yeah, no follow on ambush or anything like that. Thankfully, um, both my gunner and the guy that, you know, drug out the back, uh, they both got injured, but returned to duty about three weeks later, no major lasting injuries, thankfully. At that point in time, uh, for somebody who's so gung ho to get to Afghanistan, not that you made a bad decision, but it's like, okay, uh, 
Maybe maybe this isn't going to end the way I thought it was going to. Well, you know, it's interesting, and, and I don't want this to be misconstrued or, or to sound stupid, but I, I had sort of reckoned with death. I, I knew what I was getting into when I when I joined the military. I mean, you don't join infantry during a time of war and go, hey, nothing's going to happen to me. Right. Um, I, had, I had already sort of I dealt with that. And, you know, it's not that you don't think twice about things like you're saying, but I had already thought that through so many times. It was like, I mean, if you've ever been in a gunfight or blown up, like, you know, that after that, like you had this very, very clear realization that it doesn't matter how good anybody around you is. If it's your time and it's going to happen, you are not going to dodge it. There's just no way out of it. You know, if it's your bullet or if it's, you know, the, an ambush or if it's a, an explosion, you just you're not going to escape it like you're just not. And there's a certain uh, recklessness, I think, that can come with that. But I think there's also a, a lot of comfort that can allow you to do very well on the battlefield that comes with that. Uh, you can't be too careless, but if you hang on too tight, you know, you, you might not you might not do what you're supposed to do when it when it's needed most. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a theme that we, we hit on a lot, sort of, you know, and I always say it's the randomness of combat. But uh, to your point, uh, I, I think all of us have to deal with, with that reckoning of our own mortality. And when you talk about PTSD and what it does to people and, and where it is, I think a lot of it stems from the inability to reckon with it or uh, you come to the realization that you don't you didn't understand it the way you thought you did. You know, I mean, what you talk about for me personally, it was one of those things where, look, I always knew that dying was a possibility, but not wasn't really until after my first firefight that you started, you really have a whole sense of different thoughts about this whole thing. And you start to realize that I, I was just lucky, right? Like I, I was, if I'm oh, yeah. five feet to the left or five feet to the right, my outcome could be entirely different. And, and, and you have to, as you talked about, you know, not hold on so tight and let go a little bit. Uh, and just do what you're trained to do. And as <laughs> crappy as it sounds, hope for the best. I mean, I, there's not really a better yeah. outcome um, than that because I've seen it before. I've seen people who did everything the way exactly the way they were trained and they still got hit and they still got hurt and some people still got killed. And I've seen people do some of the dumbest damn things you could ever think of that goes completely to counter to any training we have and they get out scot-free. I mean, there's there's no rhyme or reason to it. Yeah, All right. Absolutely. So uh, you get blown up. You return to duty immediately after this. You, did you have to have any downtime or no? Yeah, I stayed. I stayed on the mission because even though I had sustained somewhat of a, a TBI at that point, I didn't know it, and I wasn't physically wounded in that explosion. So I stayed on the mission. Uh, you know, a helicopter came in, medevac or two guys, and then uh, we were out there for about two more days because we were one vehicle short, and so had to get that coming picked up by the Chinooks and big old, you know. Hooks the hooks they hook up to yep. it, fly the wreckage away, and then we had a follow-on mission on the way back. A lot of people go, "Oh man, you probably got to have like a week off, right?" And it's like, no, they gave us a follow-on mission because we were passing by another village on the way back, and so hey, we had we had all the equipment we needed and uh, did that. We got back about two days, uh, about two and a half, two two and a half days after that explosion. Uh, before we get to the second one, I'm just kind of curious. As you, what's like the weirdest thing you saw going through some of these villages and looking for people and looking for bad guys? Do you remember anything that sort of stood out or a village that in particular that you just remember? You know, what blew me away is that people lived like the Flintstones. They, yeah. they were some of those villages are in the stone age. I mean, yep. they're, huts. they're in mud huts yep. with like no running water. Not like it's, it's a mud hut 
with a little door you walk through. And like, that's the whole thing. And I mean, God, one time we were driving for hours through RC East, just out in the middle of nowhere. And we saw like some 10 year old kid with like 20 goats and he's just walking. And we were driving like at probably 30, 40 miles an hour, three hours we've been driving from this direction. We didn't reach our destination for like another two. And I'm like, man, this kid's a survivor. Like, like it took us this long in a vehicle <laughs> and he's out here walking with animals and it's like 120 outside. It's at elevation. It's like kids a survivor. I mean, I mean, kids in America, I mean, couldn't hold a candle to the grit this kid had and who knows where he's going or how long he was out there. Yeah. And that was, that, that blew me away. And when you say mud huts, like for, for civilians who don't know, like we're not talking high end masonry here. Like it's not even cement. You know, it's just like clay of the earth that gets wet, that sort of dries hard enough to put two bricks from moving from each other. I mean, it is, it's, it's crazy. Um, you mix it with, yeah, you mix it with hay, yeah. it hardens, and apparently a 50 caliber round won't go through it. I, really? I, I didn't get to test that, but I've been told. Huh. Yeah. So, I mean, I, they're, they're pretty, they're pretty thick too, man. I mean, you're talking like some of them a foot and a half, two feet wow. thick also. Yeah. Uh, all right. The second time that you get hit that ultimately, you know, leads to your injuries. Um, what happens there? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I actually wanted to reclass my job from infantry to EOD. And if you don't know what EOD is, if you're a listener, it's a explosive ordnance disposal. It's the bomb squad. So basically if, if it blows up, it's their business. If you see that guy or lady running, you better be in front of them. And I don't know what made me want to do that even after this first explosion, but I did. So I had what's called a P3 on my profile. I got a profile for some reason on my medical record. I had never been a sick cause in best shape in my life. We'd been running up and down mountains fighting Taliban. And the EOD guy said, well, you got a P3 on your profile. That means you're not physically fit for active duty. I said, what are you talking about? So, <laughs> you know, and so I had to go to Kandahar to get reevaluated by a physician down there to get that off my record so I could continue the process of, of reclassing my job. We got two miles from the front gates of Kandahar Airfield and a white minivan pulled out in front of my vehicle. Uh, I was the truck commander in the lead vehicle of about a 15 vehicle convoy. It was my first Sergeant's Humvee. And so um, and I always, you know, told him you're welcome for getting his vehicle blown up, but he wasn't in it, thankfully. Um, but yeah, a white minivan pulled up next uh, in front of my vehicle. And so my, my driver just passed him on the left. You know, it's a two lane road. Try to get up on their side, come up beside him, pass him. We didn't know it was being driven by a suicide bomber and he had the thing loaded. And so, you know, we're, you know, passing him on the left in the opposing lane. I mean, I could have just about reached my arm out the window and almost touched the vehicle. It's just two lanes. And uh, as we got right up next to him, right up next to him, I mean, he just hit, the whole thing exploded. Um, I don't remember an explosion happening. I just remember everything was fine. There was a white, a white van and we were passing it. And then it was literally like you blink your eye. It's that fast. You literally in the blink of an eye. You go from being in the vehicle, everything's fine, to uh, I'm laying in a ditch on the side of the road on the side of Highway 1 in Kandahar. I have no idea where I am or why I was there. Uh, my, my helmet was no longer on my head. I was laying on my face down. Um, I had blood pouring out of my face. And I did sort of a push-up to kind of get up and figure out where I was. I, you know, I started walking around a little bit. And then I saw the vehicle over here that was starting to catch on fire. Um, 
my gunner, you know, he got peppered with shrapnel and uh, ended up losing his right eye. Uh, my medic, my driver uh, was working on him. And uh, yeah, I was just kind of <laughs> dazed and I didn't really know what happened. Ended up having full face and neck, second degree burns, which thankfully healed. And then third degree on both my hands, which, you know, I'll tell you later about that if you want, uh, required reconstructive surgery. Mm-hmm. So you, you have no recollection of the blast. When you start to look around you, I, I know you mentioned your gunner, but how much other damage is done here? Is it, is it pure chaos or did your vehicle absorb the brunt of this thing? Uh, the vehicle observed like all the shrapnel. I mean, I got I got burned second degree on the face and neck. Now, Again, just it healed. You can't even tell. This is an up armored Humvee. So close. Is it an up armored Humvee with the, with the bulletproof glass and everything? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so, but I was so I was so close right. to the proximity of the initial blast. I think it was just the heat within that realm, within that radius. It. it was just probably overwhelming. What's weird though is that our interpreter, who was sitting right behind me in the back seat completely untouched completely unharmed i have no idea makes no sense i have no idea but i'm grateful he wasn't hurt that's crazy it's Uh, weird yeah again speaks to the randomness of it before right i mean you're literally he's literally eight eight inches distance from you and maybe an arm's length at most uh and he ends up completely fine that's uh that's insanity um but so was everybody else in the convoy okay what happens next do you guys just drive on to kandahar because you're only the base because you're only two miles away or you're getting medevaced at this point no i uh, me and my gunner got medevaced okay. um fastest start medevac you ever had too i think it took him a half hour but two you know wheels up and it's two miles away you're there in you know a second they were probably eating tacos for lunch when we interrupted them uh the pilots i'm sure but uh it was about lunchtime but yeah me and the gunner uh we got medevaced out the vehicle's completely disabled uh, if you go to blownupguy.com, that's my website. It's just really easy to way to remember me. Um, there are lots of guys and women, obviously, who have been blown up. I just I'm the only guy who thought it was funny to have that website, and so I did. And uh, but on there, there's actually pictures of me right after it happened when they got me off the roadside. And you know, if you're eating food, you're you're not going to be hungry anymore. It's pretty graphic, but you'll see both the humvees as well. And uh, I'm happy to report that the suicide bomber was actually the only person to die that day. Really? So my hat's off to him, like mission accomplished. That's why my purple heart plate says nice try. I just thought it'd be a funny little, you know, stick at him. I'm, I'm actually going to the website right now just for a goof. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you, since you were kind of unaware what had happened how did you find out after the fact that did, did other platoon mates tell you like what what how'd you end up getting recounting all the events i should say yeah and so after i woke up and i was walking around his days uh, my medic ended up coming up to me and having me sit down and started attending to me and i didn't even really know if i was injured or or what because i could walk and stuff but uh you know he said oh man you're good you're good but I could tell by looking in his eyes, he was freaked out. And I didn't, I just, you know, he did his best to lie to me. It was the best thing he could do. Uh, but I could tell something was wrong. And, you know, I was, I was sitting there, you know, he cut, he cut my, my, you know, camo ACU top off me, everything, you know, didn't want to pull it over my neck and face. And, you know, I asked him what had happened after the medevac. He came in after everything was said and done to the hospital room at CAF. And I said, man, what happened? Like, because at this point I'm in extreme pain. You know, I had been medevac and had no no pain meds. The adrenaline wore off, second and third degree burns, 120 degrees outside at elevation. It was painful. 
And he came in later and told me, he said, dude, a suicide bomber like blew his minivan up right outside your door. And I said, really? He said, yeah. <laughs> he's, and he's like, yeah, man, like we we're here. So um, he's not, but we are, you know, we kind of actually kind of joked about it a little bit, even though it wasn't a lot of pain. Uh, it kind of made me laugh. That's all you can do at that point. I mean, it's listen, uh, the tension of combat uh, sometimes a fart is exactly what you need just to get everybody's mind off things, right? Like it's just, it's it, weird how that works. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes it's literally like, you know, like seventh grade humor um, that just, you know, gets you to relax for a split second, which is, which is uber needed. And uh, the laughs in those moments usually are never forgotten for, for that specific reason. Um, so, all right. So you uh, get medevaced um, and, I'm sorry, you ended up back at the ba- the, the medic, you know, the mass unit up at, at, in Kandahar, or how quickly did you get out of there for Germany and everything else? Yeah, so I was medic back to, to Kandahar, which is right there. Right. We were right near it. Then from the time I was blasted to the time I arrived at Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas, was three days. So I went from Kandahar to Bagram to Lonstall, Germany, to San Antonio where I stayed for the following 14 months. Was there any discussion of you staying at all or, or just the burns and everything were too bad? I was staying in the army. No, like staying, yeah. Or recuperating in Afghanistan or at least Germany and then going back to duty. Oh. No, no, because of the, the extent of the burns, uh, you know, the doctors were like, no, he needs, he needs extreme, you know, burn care. It's like, you know, we're not equipped for this. And so, yeah, definitely was going home. When did you get a chance to talk to your family? Uh, I saw my wife that night when they rolled me into Bamsey in San Antonio. Okay. And I saw her for about five minutes uh, before they took me into the uh, the shower room and uh, did what they do to every burn person. Uh, they take in there, they spray off with, with water, and they take razor blades, and they have to shave all that dirty burn skin off you. Oh. And, uh, yeah, it's it's Could have done without that visual. Oh, God. Yeah, it's called debridement, and they can't put you out for it, I guess, because they're they're afraid to flip into a coma because they have to do it multiple times. But you can go into shock from the pain, and uh, for me, it was just my hands, face, and neck. Uh, not oh, like all. some other friends of mine in there who are like eighty and ninety percent full body burns. I can't even imagine what they went through. But yeah, they the nurse looked at me and he said, uh, "Hey, Sergeant Fleming, we're going to do this as quickly as possible, so it'll be as painless as possible." I didn't know what he meant, my medic. Uh, my medic did me a big favor. He didn't tell me what they're going to do to me. And, uh, yeah, they went to town on it and it uh, seemed like an eternity. It took about 30 minutes. Um, yeah, it was one of those moments, man, where like, you know, no guy wants to say he reached his breaking point or he wanted to give up, but, you know, sort of being filleted alive, that's where I just sort of prayed to die. And, uh, if I could just be dead or, or out, like I wouldn't be in that pain. It was, it would, that was the worst part of the whole experience was that. I mean, the explosion was, I mean, whatever, but like, I mean, with those, the skin getting scraped off and the nerves and uh, everything, it's, 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 I don't know any word in any language that accurately describes it. You just, any guy, anybody who's been burned severely knows. And again, I wasn't even burned as badly as some of my friends in there. Uh, yeah, I just, um, my mind is racing about that whole experience. Um, not that I'm dying to find out or anything, but. Yeah, it, it just it, it uh, as you talk about it, 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 it kind of take me there with you through through that moment. So, uh, wow. All right. So, what is next after the the debridement, and um, how how does your rehab start off? I should say. Yeah, they did the debridement, and then um, 
within a few days, they did reconstructive surgery. They took uh, skin what? grafts. Okay, skin grafts. Skin grafts from uh, both my both my thighs, the front of my thighs, and grafted both my hands. The doctor actually initially said he was going to graft my face, but he said, you know, it's Friday night. I'll give you till Monday. If you don't start healing up by Monday on the face, I got to graft the face. And, you know, it's weird because he told me they were, where they normally start taking skin from, which is like your backside. He told me that for some reason and then said, I'll be in on Monday and we're going to basically see if we're going to graft your face. And I'm thinking, all right, you just told me you're going to take, take skin off my rear end and graft it to my face. Yeah. So I had something to think about the whole weekend. I always thought that was weird. I'm like, this guy, is he a sergeant major? Uh, like, or did he used to be? <laughs> uh, my first thought was be, I would give true meaning to the name ass face. What's up, ass yeah. face? Yes, that's literally yeah, that's right. my ass is on my face. Um, All those names I was called as a kid, they'd be true. And, you know, I was just thinking, my, will my wife ever kiss me again? You know, thank God I don't have a tattoo there because that'd be weird. It's on my face now. You know, all these weird Every thoughts. time you told yeah. somebody to kiss your ass, they could literally just give you a kiss on the face and it would work That's out right. just fine. So, yeah, um, That's right. we're actually having a lot of fun with this now that I'm doing this. Uh, not that I yeah. want to go through it, but I, did, what was the reason from Friday to Monday? I mean, it just seems like, hey, look, it's the weekend. I'll see you. Guys, I'll see you on Monday. Like you know, I guess, I guess he had a basketball. Uh, I'm going to bomb, I'm going to bat mitzvah this weekend. Like you know, I'll talk to you on yeah. Monday. Like what, what's going yeah. on? Well, here? I was I was stabilized, and I think <laughs> I think they just wanted a few days to kind of see. I guess they could gauge over a few days, kind of how I was healing on different parts of my body, and if they're what they're going to have to do. You mentioned your hands before. Uh, and then you said that they grafted your hands. What was going on there? Was it much more serious than anticipated? Uh, yeah, my face and neck were second degree with a little bit of third on the back. My The tops of my hands were full thickness, third degree burns. And so, you know, they, they had to do the most work on those. Like and, to the point where you could see bone or? You know, I, I, I never saw the bone, but my hands were like giant, like inflated, puffy, okay, like super gotcha. swollen brown dead like a dead hand on looking if, if you can imagine what that would look like like a burn severed hand it's just dead looking um kind of like something you might see out of a zombie movie um it was just brown and gross and puffy and did it freak you out not really i i saw it but you know most of the time after they they worked on it they had it wrapped anyway did you think you were going to lose them no no there was never a, okay. uh never a fear of that I'll tell you what was weird, though, is when I walked into the bathroom on the C5 on the way home from Germany, I went into the little bathroom on the plane there, and I hadn't seen myself. And so there's a mirror in there, and I didn't realize that I just had to pee. And so I went in there, and I opened the door, and I happened to see somebody in the mirror, and I said, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I thought I, I thought I walked in on somebody. Well, because I didn't recognize myself because my, my face had all this gunk coming out of it. And it was multicolored. It was blood. It was yellow and green pus. And I thought I walked in on somebody. And then I, then I did one of these and I'm like, oh, it's me. God. Like, oh, that's me. Which it was kind of like, wow, that's me. But it was, I mean, it was like, well, I, I know what I feel like. So that kind of matches how I feel. Wow, that's crazy. Um, yeah. It's hard to go through, you know, 14 months of rehab, um, but ups and downs of it, uh, obviously some days better than others. Um, what kind of give me the significant highlights of the rehab and some of the struggles that you had? Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the struggles were just being able to use my hands again, because when you get a skin graft, that graft shrinks to one third about its original size. And it had been over the knuckles on the hands. And so I couldn't do more than this. Uh 
for a number of months and every day going into rehab and they'd start like this, you know, they'd start with one knuckle pinching it and then we'd work on getting it down. And then the next knuckle. Was I mean, that just to stretch so out the skin? Pretty. What's that? Was it just to stretch out the skin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that I had to get range of motion back and it was tightening. And so every day I had to go in there and do rehab from here to here to here over months. I was able to get range of motion back because, you know, the skin graft would have tightened and healed that way if not. And every day I thought my hand was going to just bust open, but it never did. Skin is extremely tough. Wow. Um, over the course of 14 months, is it just that? Is it just rehab every day? I mean, is that what you're doing there or? Um, pretty, pretty much checking okay. on that. Um, thankfully, they didn't have to do multiple surgeries or grafts, which they often do. Um, thankfully, they didn't have to. How long does it and, take your face to heal? Man, my face was it, probably about a month and a half afterwards. My face was still pretty pink. Uh, you could definitely tell something happened to me, but it was it was pink skin, and that was healing. So after after a few months, I I, I looked mostly normal again. I was pretty much healed on the face. By the way, what did the what did the doc say to you on Monday? You're not going to be ass face. Oh, he didn't tell me. <laughs> uh, he, they said, "Hey, they come in doing surgery, and they said you want us to put a catheter in." I said, "Hell no!" And uh, I don't know why they asked me that. I woke up out of surgery, and the most frightening thing I've ever experienced literally happened. I turned sideways in my bed, and I felt something down there that I've never felt before. And I looked under the sheets. And they put a catheter in me. Now I can walk, man. You just took some skin off the top of my legs. And that was, that was literally like the freakiest experience ever. I wanted to yank it out, but I was afraid. Cause I'm like, what if it hurts? I don't know anything about this. Oh man. And when they pulled it out, oh my God, just, oh, put me to sleep for that. Oh really? Yeah. So that was, <laughs> other than get my skin scraped off with razor blades, like oh, have, waking up with a catheter. And that was the freakiest thing. Wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. They, they should probably warn you before they do that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, when do you get the word that you're going to get released from from Bamsey? Like from the Army overall? Like yeah, you're well, done, you're out? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess both. I mean, obviously, you know, would, were you desiring to go back to duty or they had told you, hey, look, you're done with this, even though you're rehabbing and you're getting back to, I mean, I guess close to 100 percent, right? Yeah, I mean, due to the extent of the cumulative injuries, the the burns were taking a long time to heal, and and also like with the psychological, you know, this had had post traumatic stress, um, the TBI. I had short term memory issues, and I've still suffered from that for years. Headaches every day. Um, you know, if, if I sometimes just wearing a hat, I'll get a headache. So I'm like, well, great. How am I going to wear a helmet? And so there were other things. My sergeant major tried to talk me to getting back in. And I really had to think about my future. I had to think about um, what was best for my family, but also I, I knew I was forgetting things. Um, and that had that started happening after the first explosion, but I didn't know it. And then the second one just amplified like the memory issues. And so now it's like, man, if I forget something on a mission, like somebody could right. die from that. Yeah. Like, and it was, it was more like not, it wasn't about being gung ho and I'm staying in and going back. It's like, it's like, this is way too serious. And I know it. And it was time to move on anyway. And, um, I had a very unique experience. Uh, if you, if you want to talk about that after, as I was getting out, uh, that led me down the path I'm on. 
Okay, so was it was it a difficult sort of emotional thing for you to not, um, you know, be able to go back into the military after you had such a desire to do it? You know, I think I kind of got what I was looking for in the military. I wasn't obviously looking to be injured, but when it, like I'd said in the beginning of our show here, I was looking to go and do something, you know, to, to be a part of, you know, the military and, and have that affirmation as a young man. Um, and I, I think I had gotten that. And so I wasn't, I was never, you know, it's weird. I was never really emotional over it. Everybody responds to trauma differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I was never sitting in a corner crying or shaking. Um, some people, that's how they handle it. There's no shame in that. Uh, everyone's different. Um, I, I had a couple of really bad life experiences as a kid. And so I think actually those experiences really hardened me emotionally, uh, which to a, to a, to an unbalanced extent that can be very unhealthy. Uh, but in this case, I think it really helped me. You know, I, I had had some really thick skin growing up, uh, just due to some really bad things that took place before ever thinking of going in the military. And so I think for that reason, I wasn't very emotional over the injury or over getting out and moving on. It was literally just like the counselor would ask me, like, how are you feeling today? You know, why you got blown up? What was that like? I'm like, well, guy pulled up next to us and blew up. I woke up on the side of the road. Uh, I'm, I'm healing, though. I'm better now. I'm going to live and I'll figure it out. It, I, emotionally, literally, it was never anything more than that. Um, and again, I don't want it to try to, I don't want it to sound like I'm trying to be a tough guy. It just wasn't, that's just how I handle things. And that I happen to be in that kind of situation where that actually came in very handy and was helpful. So as far as the PTSD is concerned, I mean, you're, you're talking like you had a good grasp on everything. Um, what about PTSD was still sort of lingering for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, for years after, and even still, sometimes it's not like, it's not like, you know, I hear a noise and I can't come out of my room It's for me, it's more like my fuse and patience used to be this long. And now it's about this long. Yep. It went from like 12 inches to about one. And it's just like, you just, uh, you know, sometimes and it, it still happens, you know, and you know, I've, I've gotten way better over the years. Um, I believe that it can be worked past. I know Vietnam vets who legitimately I've spent years with them, my original mentor being one of them, the guy who got me into everything I do, that guy was blown up in Vietnam, half his body burned off by a phosphorus grenade. And I mean, that guy, I've never, I've, I've never witnessed even a hint of post-traumatic stress in that guy. And it's the weirdest thing, but you know, that's what gives me hope and going, you know, I don't know if it's always a recovering thing. I think if a person finds what works for them and it's different for everybody sometimes if they find what works for them their groove that they can get into when they they know they're starting to feel a certain way or getting triggered or angry by something we can get a we can get a hold on these things but there's no one size fits all that's the problem what works for me might not work for you or maybe it will it just sort of depends you have to find what works for you yeah uh there's definitely no uh cookie cutter format for this every because everybody responds to stimuli differently right yep. and so how they respond to it is how they're going to sort of manifest it and express it and uh, that's not the same they can be similar but still um if, if there was a cookie cutter cure for this we wouldn't be dealing with it to the level that we still are to this day so yeah um all right so you you leave the army do, do you have a plan for what's next for you after they they sort of 
discharge you, if you will, from BAMC? I mean, do you, do you, uh, you're, you're leaving Brooks Army Medical Center. You're going back home. Are you going back to Michigan, Miami? Where are you going? I had no idea <laughs> until, until about January 25th of 2007, about five months after my injury. My injury was on July 24th of 06. And that day, the guy who had become my mentor, and to this day is one of my absolute best friends, a guy named guy named Dave Reaver, who was horribly burned in Vietnam. He's, he was an author and speaker, um, had been married to the same woman for over like 40 years. I've been doing the speaking you know, about 30, 35 years at that point. Uh, extremely successful in his career, extremely successful in his marriage. Married, still married to the same wonderful lady uh, he married before he went out to Vietnam. And he came to speak to me and about 30 other guys who'd been blown up, shot up and everything. And man, he got up there and he started talking and joking about his injuries. You know, he said he got blown up on a riverboat, sniper aiming for his head or aiming for his hand, uh, which had a grenade in it. Uh, he went to throw it in the brush. And as he went to throw it, a sniper's bullet hit his hand, exploding the grenade right next to his right ear. And he said, man, I jumped in the water. He said, my, my skin was floating all around me. And he looked right at me and he goes, man, you know what? I was beside myself. He said, man, I had to pull myself together. And we just, we all laughed what was left of our body parts off. And, <laughs> you know, it, I, what happened there was this. We saw a guy who had been where we were, but he didn't stay there. Not mentally, not physically, not in his career, not in his mindset. The guy, he dealt with his demons and he moved the hell on. And that's what people have to do. He and I just happened to kick it off and really become friends after that. And he invited me to speak at some of his events. And that's when he told me, hey, I've got this program out in Colorado where I'm going to start training other guys like you and speaking. And I was his first uh, sort of student apprentice uh, with this program for you know, wounded warriors, uh, wounded soldiers. And uh, he took me everywhere with him uh, on the, almost every event he had, which was about 70 events a year, uh, about 60 or 70. Uh, he put me on every single stage and he gave me two minutes. Wow. He gave me three minutes. Then he gave me five minutes. And here's what happened. Every time I told a little bit of my story, I got a little bit better. And not only that, but I saw other people who had never been in the military, but they'd been hurt. And they said, you know, if you can make it through all that, I think I can keep going. I, the first time he did it, a young lady walked up to me. It was about, about in her early 20s, about my age at the time. And she said, you know, I was raped and I was abused and molested as a kid all through my teen years. My boyfriend was abusive. He just broke up with me a couple months ago. I tried to kill myself a couple weeks ago and I failed. She just walked up to me and said that. But then she said this. She goes, you know, but if you can make it through all that, she said, I think I can get through this. And that was a complete turning point in my life. I never knew what happened in that moment, which is the biggest thing that got me past my injury until I read a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I've read it. A, oh, you know, then I, he was a, high school he was reading a, for me. He was a, he was a Holocaust survivor. Yep. And this is what he said about suffering. What to I couldn't explain in a thousand words. He said it in one sentence and it's this. He said, in some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. And I'll say that again for your listeners. In some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning. When I met that young lady and I realized it helped her and she's not going to go home and put a gun in her mouth or drink a bottle of pills, I thought, you know, maybe there's a reason I'm still here. Like it's to find, maybe it's to just find people like her 
and it felt amazing. And I didn't even mean to do it. And people say, Brian, you really helped that lady. Okay, I didn't mean to, but you know what? She helped me. And again, every time I told a little bit of my story, not to talk about me, I was trying to find those other people like her who are, who, who are on the edge and they're in every single audience I speak to. And that's been the fire behind everything I do ever since. And a lot of people, you know, once you get a certain amount of accomplishment and something like this, people go, oh, just going around talking about himself. It's like, people, you don't get it. Like, people are suffering and they, they sometimes they just need to see someone who's made it through some hell, even if it was a different hell. And, you know, it's like, I, I felt like I owed it to people. Like I got a second chance at life at 20 years old, man. And like, I shouldn't have survived that. And I did. And it's like finding people like her and helping them that became everything. That was everything. I, it's, it's, there's never been anything that's driven me more. All right, hold on. I'm, I want to do this for our viewing audience here. Stand by because it's, okay. you mentioned that book. And when I tell you that I've read it, it is sitting right here. It is sitting it. right here. It's on the bookshelf in my office. Mine uh, is right around my desk. So, I'm looking so for at those it. <laughs> who, are, who are watching on, on uh, our YouTube yeah. channel or on Kilcliffe's YouTube channel, this is the book. And when I tell you that I have, uh, you can see I have underlined passages in this book. I'm kind of getting as close as possible. I, I've read this book so many times. Um, I read it in high school. I read it again during my first deployment. I've dog-eared the pages and everything else. Um, it is a absolutely wonderful, wonderful read uh, for anybody who has had any sort of struggle in their life. Um, and, and in short, what we took... To, mine. There you go. To, li- mine. to live is dog-eared, to... Su- dog-eared, torn up, <laughs> underlined... <laughs> Like half the book. Yeah, exact same story. Uh, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in suffering. And that's uh, that's Victor Frankl. And, and well, and here's another thing. There are a lot of guys like you and me who are in a state of despair. And despair psychologically from the mental health community is pretty much defined as a complete loss of hope, generally. What I loved was that Victor Frankl, he had his own definition of the word despair. Do you know what it was? He said, despair is suffering without meaning, Mm -hmm. suffering without meaning. And here's why I think I was able to move forward so fast. I met my mentor. I discovered a sense of meaning within about six or seven months after my injury. I didn't have a lot of time to to think about it and fall into a state of hopelessness. I I really think I got lucky there. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, uh, beyond the book, uh, I think that that purpose for a lot of PTSD victims and a lot of people who are struggling, particularly military folks, you know, there's a lot of loss that isn't necessarily tangible. I mean, look, you can lose limbs, you lost skin, right? You can lose all those things. And to a certain extent, they can be replicated, replaced, reproduced, uh, all those things. But the purpose that they found in the military, the purpose that they had protecting the person next to them, you know, the, 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 the squad member, the team member next to them, when that's gone, uh, there's a void there. And, and, a, and a lot of them struggle because now no one's depending on them and no one needs them. And all of a sudden there's this loneliness um, that, that becomes suffering to them, right? I mean, I think, I think all those things yeah. are, are dynamically true. Well, yeah. Well, number one, when you get out of the military, there's now like no longer a mission, like no one's handing out missions. Like you have to create the mission. The first thing you were ever taught in basic training or boot camp, wherever you went, is you don't go anywhere alone. You lose all the guys you've depended on, the relationships. You're now by default alone. And you're on a new battlefield, the civilian world. 
And the worst thing you can be on a battlefield is alone, in my opinion. Like, you might be out of ammo, but you can call in air support. But if you're alone, you're hopeless. You're, you're gone. Like, you better get to safety in numbers fast back to your allies. And so many of us, we get out by default. Every, time, every one of us that gets out, we're alone. And we don't tend to plug in. Now, I, and I'll tell you this, man. I hear a lot of people, a lot of veterans talk about this. They don't want to go for help. You know, it's the whole, I don't want to go for help thing. You know, you know, I can do it. You know, we're, we were taught, though I be the lone survivor and fight to the end. Well, here's the problem. And I equate it to this. Like, if, if you're a veteran and you're dealing with stuff, PTSD, whatever, you think nobody notices. Trust me, people notice. Like, you're not hiding anything if you're dealing with it. Now, here's my message to them, though. You know, when I was in Afghanistan and we were living on mountaintops, to mountaintops, living out in the mountains, there were times that we had to call in air support. We had A-10 warthogs that would do gun runs and drop 500-pound bombs for us, and they would save us. We would call in air support. Let me ask you this. If you're screwing up in your life, if you're out of control mentally, if you're destroying your marriage, and you're not asking for help because you think you can do it alone or, or you know, be tough, it's like, imagine yourself being under a leader, like let's say your platoon leader in the mountains of Afghanistan, you're about to get overrun. And someone says, Hey, call in air support. You know, we need air support now. And the LT goes, no, we don't want higher up to think we can't handle ourselves in combat. Dude, that would be so stupid. So stupid. And if his guy, if the enemy didn't kill him, the, his guys probably would, yeah, yeah. or he'd be relieved of his command when he gets back. That would be stupid. But every day, guys like you and me, we act like that. And we're not calling in air support. It's like, man, if you don't call in air support and you get overrun, everyone's going to know about it when everything gets blown to pieces. It's like, you know, you were taught to call in air support. Where, where in your transition out of the military did you get this idea that going out onto a new battlefield alone was a good idea? It's, it spits in the face of everything you were ever taught in the military. I can hear some of the public speaking coming out. You mentioned you got two, three minute segments. When do you get your first kind of, or when do you have your first foray into your own event and your own public speaking lead? My first full event by myself mm -hmm. was on November 11th, Veterans Day of 2007 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And uh, I spoke and that was, I was counting down the hours until midnight and I was officially discharged. And, uh, they recorded it. They became my first DVD. That was the one I started selling and giving away. It was like, hey, man, you recorded that. Mind if I get a shot? They have like three, four, or five cameras. And I'm like, that's a really good video. Mind if I use it? And they're like, yeah, go for it. And that was how I was able to start getting the message out. Not just my story, but like, here's what I went through and here's what I learned through it. And um, yeah, I was, I was young and speaking. It's embarrassing to watch now, <laughs> you know, 14 years later. But it's like I started, man. I right. started. Um. As far as the, we touched on some of the, you know, central themes and thesis that you touch on, but give a couple more of them as far as for what you, when you go to a speaking event, I know these things are paid and I don't want you to give away all your secrets, you know, uh, yeah, but, yeah. you know, let's, let's kind of just for, for uh, the audience, um, let's, let's gloss over the, the fine points of, of a speech you would give. Yeah. You know, we, we've already sort of touched on one of them, which is the mentorship piece. I had a mentor who understood me. And I knew he'd been there, but he didn't stay there. And I kind of call that the unicorn experience because that really doesn't happen for people. 
I was extremely fortunate. I didn't control that miracle. Like that happened in my life. And I know that doesn't happen for most guys like us. But there are three things I talk about in the resilience booklet. And by the way, if you want a free ebook copy of this, just go to the this website. It's freerbooklet.com. Free letter R as in resilience, free and the letter R booklet.com. You can download a free ebook version there. Um, but what I talk about in this book, and it's only like 56 pages, it's short. I wrote it for guys like me. Um, and so, but there's probably a hundred different nuggets in there of resilience, practical resilience, but there's three foundational things. And I noticed these things were in my life. And I noticed they're in the lives of other friends of mine who had bounced back and moved forward and like productively after extreme uh, trauma, as well as I found other historical figures who had overcome, they had these things in common too. And so the resilience booklet, you know, it's about how extreme survivors overcome massive challenges and the three things that I found were present in my life, this was about five or six years after my injury, I realized this. I had a sense of meaning in my life. I t- we talked about that already. I had a mentor. I had somebody I was following who's helping me guide me and lead me somewhere. And I had a mission bigger than me that I was living for. And a lot of people have things in their life that they have bad things. And they lead to one to the next to the next and it compounds and it goes into a downward spiral with the sense of meaning, the mentorship in my life, and a mission bigger than me to live for, I, I sort of went into an upward spiral. Everything just started getting better. And the weird thing about it is that, you know, meaning was the first thing. And then mentorship helped nurture that. And then having a mission greater than me to live for, which helped me to seek out more mentors and to explore that, which, you know, on my mission, and so it eventually became me teaching uh, guys, let's say guys, men and women. You know, I was in an infantry platoon you know, back then. It was all guys, but uh, sometimes I still say guys, but um, it was teaching them, look, here's what worked for me. I don't know if it'll work for you, but meaning, mentoring, and a mission. I am yet to find, and you can prove me wrong if you find someone, I'm personally yet to find somebody who's been through extreme trauma in their life who has a sense of meaning, good mentors and people in their life to help guide them and a mission greater than themselves that they're living for who commit suicide. I've never met one. Not to say I won't, but I've never met one. Yeah, no, I mean, that, 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 those three M's make a ton of sense, right? Um, and, and the last one in particular uh, is sort of what soldiers, as you talked about, you know, there's no mission, no place to go. That one um, can be created on their yeah. own, but it's just I mean, a question of, you know, If you think about it, what's a soldier without a mission? Yeah. I mean, what's a, what's a soldier without a country? Like, right. what is he? Like, it's, it's almost like, it's like, it's like dressing up for Halloween yeah, and, it's, and it's not I think Halloween. It's, it's I think like, it's technically the A-team, right? They're, yeah, actually, so that's the like, definition we, of the A-team. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, what, 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 what's the point of all this uh, without the mission? And so, I mean, one of my biggest pieces of advice for anybody, stick with it for 20, 30 years, but find your next one. Maybe it's just the next one for a year to three years, whatever it is. But like, don't leave the military without your next mission already planned. And you know how to plan a mission if you've been in. You know enough about an op order (laughs) or how to go, hey, I need this, I need this, I need this. These people are going to help me. This program can help me do this. I'm going to go this way. And here's my vision for what success looks like. And, you know, if I don't get it, you know, I know what defeat looks like and that's going to drive me. 
So as you begin this public speaking, uh, you also have written a couple of books. How does that start? And, and what's the kind of purpose behind writing the books as opposed to speaking? Uh, well, the books kind of complement speaking. A book will reach people I'll never, I'll never get to speak to in an audience live. Yeah. Uh, books go everywhere. People share them. They pass them around. Um, the first book, Never the Same, I started. And uh, of the notes I got back after my injury, uh, that turned into that book. And that that was really my my deployment. You know, been married three months and then deployed some of the deployment and then sort of ends with my injury. Like redeployed was my next one after that. It's about how combat veterans can fight the battle within and win the war at home. And I co-authored that with my friend Chad Robichaux. He was a recon Marine. Uh, he did nine tours in Afghanistan. Um, I met him when I lived out in Colorado, and we wrote that together. And he's actually the founder of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, uh, which is literally, hands down, the absolute best, most effective program I have ever experienced or known of for veterans. And uh, the, you know, it's, I get nothing from that. It's just I helped him start it early on, nurtured it, and we wrote the book together. And it's him and I, it's both of our perspectives on dealing with stuff after coming home. And he and I dealt with a lot of the same issues, but we dealt with them differently, had some different life experiences. And so he and I just kind of got together and put our heads together with that book. And that's sort of how Redeployed came about. And so these books came about that I've written, really just, they kind of evolved as, just as a result, as a product of where I was along my journey getting out of the military and also the fact that these books, they go places and reach people that I'll never get to speak to in a live audience. And so, you know, it, it's another way to help people. What's the biggest thrill about public speaking for you? The biggest what? Biggest thrill about public speaking. The thrill? Yeah. Man, I just, I love getting up. I, I'm a talker, man. Like, I didn't actually know I had a knack for it. Not to say, I, like, I'm not, like, one of the best by far. But, like, I enjoy, I, I learned that I'm a creative like I'm an extremely creative guy to my own detriment and uh, it's a blessing and a curse. And I didn't actually know that about myself until I started putting speeches together and learning how speeches are, you know, communication and proper communication and compelling communication. How do you structure, how do you talk for five minutes or 90 minutes and make it compelling where people listen and you keep them on their attention and they walk away going that felt like it was three minutes long and I'm better. And I took away the message. I understood it. I wasn't lost the whole time. Like that was a journey just getting to that point. Um, but I, the thrill of it is it's a creative process. And I learned through after this injury that I'm a very creative type person. I don't draw not graphically creative, but I'm a, I'm a word guy. Like I, I write ad copy for fun. That's how much of a nerd I am. <laughs> and I didn't even know there was anything called copywriting years ago. And I started writing headlines and I saw a really compelling one. And I'd make my own version of it. Next thing you know, you realize there's like an industry around this. Yeah. And, and, and as I, I got better at that and became a copywriter, I, it made me a better speaker because everything around it is communication. And if we have a very important message, you better know how to communicate it very clearly and in a way that people receive it. And that's, that can be tricky if you don't, if you don't really know how to do it and you haven't put in your reps. If you had to say which one you're better at, would it be being a soldier or being a public speaker? Probably a public speaker. I've been doing it longer. Um, you know, I, 
I was young when I was a soldier. I was, I mean, I, I was the best shape of my life. I was pretty smart, but I was immature. I mean, 18 to 22 years old. Um, I wish I had been a lot more mature or I wish I would have known more uh, at the time. I, I really could have led the guys that were assigned to me way better than I did, uh, which I really, I don't think I did very well. And if any of them, you ever talked to any of them, they would probably tell you he sucked uh, and, they, and they wouldn't even be joking. Um, but I, I was insecure as a young leader because I didn't, no one ever taught me leadership. What do you do? And it's like, here you go. And you just, you roll with the punches and you try to figure it out. But when you're, when you're not good at something, if you're in, if you're insecure, you tend to be a bad leader to try to cover up the insecurity, which it really doesn't. Uh, I would have been a way better of a servant to the people I was in charge of uh, than the person I was. So I think at this point, being a public speaker, I know I'm way better at, uh, but I did well as a soldier the task and everything required of me. But as far as being a leader, I could have been so much better, but I just wasn't there at that point in my life. If you hadn't gotten blown up, how long do you think you would have stayed in the military? Uh, well, I know my unit about nine months after they returned, uh, went to Iraq. So I would have gotten stop loss or would have been sent to Iraq in like, Oh seven, mm -hmm. I think it was. And at some point, um, and where that would have led me or if I would have made it out of there alive, I have no idea. I think I probably would have done my four and gotten out though. I never, you know, going in, you're like, Oh, I'm going to make a career. It's going to be awesome. Then you get in some shootouts and some explosions and, you know, you're sleeping in mountains for weeks on end. And you're like, do I want to be doing this when I'm 37? Like God bless the, the men and women who are, because I mean, I'm 36 now and I'm like, man, my platoon sergeant, I think was my age when we deployed. And I'm like, I know what it feels like to be 36. And it's like, I don't feel like I did when I was 21. That dude, hard as nails, man. I mean, see, I, I was the exact opposite. I went in with every intention of only doing four and 22 years later, I'm still here. So uh, yeah, I, I was the exact opposite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I probably would have gotten out though. I mean, I just, I had bigger, I had more dreams. I did, I did everything I wanted to do in the military. Really. I, I'd done what I came to do and it just happened to transition in a way that was out of my hands, but worked out for the better. If you weren't doing public speaking, what do you think you'd be doing? I don't even know. Not only what I would, what I would, I'd be doing. I don't even know who I'd be if I had never met that guy Dave, who mentored me into this next chapter of my life. That man, I I don't even like to think about who I'd be. Uh, I would have figured it out, but I, don't know, I probably would have, you know, used the college money and you know wore that out for all I could and. You know, then I'd probably go to trade school so I could actually make real money, uh, you know, or yeah, I don't think I would have gotten into business. I don't I don't I don't know. Uh, where is Dave now? Uh, he lives actually about 40 minutes from me, just on the west side of Fort Worth. But uh, he has a location out in Colorado as well, uh, where and in South Texas, where he has a couple of these ranches where he does these programs for, you know, soldiers and things like that, veterans. If people wanted to book you for speaking, where would they go? How would they do it? If you want to book me for speaking, just go to blownupguy.com. That's my speaking page. It's easy to remember. Um, you know, I came up with that when I was still in the hospital. The, ever, when I started speaking, like, everyone's like, oh, you're, uh, what's your name? You're that guy who got blown up. And I'm like, yeah, me and 10,000 other guys. But I, I recognize my infantry simple mind goes, they keep saying guy blown up. I'm like, I wonder if blown up guys available. And I, I went to write to GoDaddy. I'm like, as I'm typing, I'm like, 
this is so stupid. I know it's not available. Nine bucks, man. And it was available. <laughs> I bought it right there. <laughs> and it was the best marketing thing I ever did. But here's the thing. I'm not a genius. I didn't know it was genius. Like, I didn't know any better. I just thought, hey, this is easy to remember. Turns out being memorable is extremely effective in business and as a speaker. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know I was doing it. So I'm like, that's it. I would remember it. So maybe someone else will too. And now, now people send me like, hey, my brother went to Iraq or Afghanistan. Can you talk to him? And I say, hey, if you'll reach out to me, I'll talk to him. And so it's actually worked out very well, not just for my career, but people know how to reach me if they want to talk to someone who's been there and like, dude, how'd you deal with this? And if I don't know the answer, I know somebody who's been through something else and, you know, they would have an answer. I'm not a know-it-all. I haven't been through everything you've been through, but you know, the, the ways we get hurt are way different sometimes, but the, the, the junk we deal with after we get hurt in different ways, it's almost all the same junk. And that's one thing I've learned. I mean, that young lady I met that first time I spoke, she grew up raped and abused, dealt with the same post-traumatic stress I did after coming home from Afghanistan. Now we got hurt differently, but we dealt with the same battle and that's where people relate. It's not about you going through the same thing or knowing what it's like to be in my shoes or my boots. It's about, hey, we went through different stuff, but we're both fighting the same battle. What have you learned? Maybe it can help me or something I've learned. Maybe one of 10 things I, I talk about might, might uh, connect with you or somebody listening, and that could be the thing that gets them to their next step. And that's all you need when you're struggling, man. If you just get your next step, it's like just focusing on getting through that next evolution, you know? It's like on a 30-mile road march through the night with a heavy pack. And he always got that jackass who goes, hey, guys, only 18 more miles. And you just want to you don't want to <laughs> kill the guy. You don't want to know you've got like 18 miles left. But you focus on that next phone pole. You focus on that next tree. You focus on that next mile marker. That's how you get through stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, what's the, the schedule of a public speaker like? I, I know COVID probably has messed up a lot of things as far as your travel schedule, but pre-COVID, I mean, how often were you speaking? How often were you on the road? Yeah, 2020 was unique. You know, when you speak to people in live audiences for a living, <laughs> you're like, oh, I thought I had business under control. And it's like wiped away like a dry erase board. Um, probably 30 to 50 times a year, depending. Um, I have two kids at home. Every older public speaker I know, if they say they have one regret, it's that they wish they would have controlled their calendar more so they could have seen their kids grow up more. And so I am very defensive of my schedule. And, you know, people go, wow, this other person's speaking 100 times a year. I'm like, I'll bet they're single or about to be. I'll bet their kids don't like them very much. Uh, and if they do, God bless them. I don't know how they're doing it. Uh, I'm happy with 30 or 40 a year. That's one a, a week to every week and a half or two. It's it's like I can help people. I can do what I love. It's purpose driven. I can pay my bills, you know. But it's like I'm not I'm not doing all this and then missing my kids growing up. Right. There was one there's one time I was I was gone for like a it was almost a month. It was like October November. Insane. I came home after like three and a half weeks. My little boy and my little girl. They looked a little bit taller and different, and their voices sounded different. And I noticed, and it was weird. And that, for me, was a huge red flag. Like, you've been on the road way too damn long. Like, you need to break these things up. And so in the course of a week, I can only probably do two to three events. I mean, 
one event can be three days. You travel to it, you speak the next morning, you fly home that night or the following morning. Well, that's like three days touched on that one event. Well, you do two of those and that's six days a week. Uh, so it all, it all just depends. It varies. Well, I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's incredible that you've been able to uh, reach so many people, like you said, I mean, millions of people from how much you've done over the years. Um, do you ever stop and, and sort of reflect on, uh, the work that you're doing now and, and look at how much, how many lives it's changed and, and what you've been able to accomplish? You know, you know, it's a weird thing because, um, I, I've always been a very achievement driven person, you know, as I know, I've talked a lot about my going back to my childhood, but something in my childhood, somewhere in my childhood, I always got the idea, uh, people aren't going to love you unless you're worth something, unless you're valuable, unless you're an achiever. So I was always an extreme achiever in Boy Scouts and in school and in sports. And like, I was always like, if I'm not achieving, I'm nothing. And that's a demon I've had to fight because it's like, if, if that can, in, if that validates me, it can also invalidate me. Well, what if I couldn't speak and all my validations in that? It's like, well, well, am I just going to fall apart personally? Like that can't happen. And so, you know, it's great to look back on it, what I've been able to do or accomplish. Uh, but the mission's never done. And it's, I've already done way more with my life than I ever thought or imagined I ever could or would. Um, and I mean, that alone, it's like, it's like, well, Brian, like, are you winning in life? Like I won years ago because I found purpose and I'm doing something I love. And it's way more than I ever thought I would ever do. It's like, I've literally already won in life. Like now it's just a matter of what will I do next? And when am I going to die? Um, but I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the battle though, for me, at least at this point, it's more like um, confusion, like should I continue doing what I've been doing all these years or is there a new direction I'm supposed to go and not entirely knowing if I should make a leap somewhere or not. And, um, speaking will always be a part of what I do. And I've discovered about myself. I can't just go out and do things that make money. I have to be doing something that's tied to a purpose, a deeper cause, like, like charitable, whatever. I don't, I don't know. Like I have to give a shit about it, you know? Like I have to really care about what I'm doing or it's like, I mean, I've done copywriting jobs, writing ads for companies and man, that stuff pays well. But like, you know what? It's like, there's, there's no, my soul is not in that. It all goes back to that young lady. The first time my mentor put me on stage and she said, I'm not going to kill myself. Like it's that kind of thing that's in me. It's like, that's an anchor. I can't, I can't escape it. It's like, I didn't even put it there. It's just there. And whenever I step outside of that boundary and try to do something that's apart from that kind of thing, I, I feel a lot. I burn out fast. And so it's a, it's a weird mental battle I'm on, uh, a battleground. Yeah, but I, I also think it's one that, um, you know, ultimately all roads lead to uh, the greater benefit, the greater good for, for everybody around you, uh, including yourself. And again, yeah. uh, you know, as like you said, those other jobs that you're not passionate about, they help keep the lights on and put food on the table and, uh, you know, help help continue to pay the bills. And those are all important things. I mean, uh, yeah. it's really tough to be passionate about every single thing you do in life. There's just not enough time and hours in the day to devote the same level of passion to mm. multiple different things. Uh, and usually, as you said, if you're somebody who has a parent who has kids, you know, that, that devotion um, is more 
geared towards that. And every parent knows how much that, that kind of takes out of you. So, uh, belaboring the point, you know, I just, I'm sort of relating to where you are and certainly understand it from that standpoint, you know, which, uh, and, and, you know, shameless plug here, but it's kind of why we do this. It's, you know, it's that passion for sharing these stories and that passion for trying to impact other people's lives. And, um, you know, we, we always talked about this, this podcast is we just want people to hear the stories, you know, like whatever comes from it. Otherwise, you know, our genuine goal has always been for the audience to hear stories like yours and hopefully somewhere somebody relates to it. And, and, you know, the same way someone related to you and said, I'm not going to kill myself. Hopefully somebody here relates to this and goes, you know what? I do have a purpose. I can find a mission. I can, I'm going to go find a mentor. Those, those three M's you talked about earlier are all going to come into play. And so, um, well, uh, we don't reach as many people as you do speaking. Hopefully one day we will, but that's kind of where, where we are at the hazard ground. So again, the, yeah. the, uh, the resilience booklet, the free audio book, you can go to free booklet.com, right? Free. Yeah. That's the letter that's, R yeah, booklet.com. And that's the, the ebook version. If you just go to resiliencebooklet.com, you can get the hard copy version and there's some other stuff. But if you want the free download right to your phone or computer, just go to freearbooklet.com. And of course, blownupguy.com. Uh, blownupguy.com if you want to book me or learn more about what I do in speaking. And I have some videos and resources on there as well. And some gory pictures uh, of your face. Uh, and some nice, beautiful, gory pictures. And uh, I don't look a whole lot better on there. I just <laughs> <laughs> well, look on the bright side. I feel side. a lot better, but yeah. I'm I'm not ending this this, this podcast going thanks ass face. So yeah. there is that. Uh, <laughs> I've been called worse. <laughs> we certainly appreciate you sharing everything with us. And, and look, the resiliency tips, the life tips, you know, they they come through every time you speak, man. And so I think the audience is is absolutely going to pick up on that. So I, I appreciate you sharing it with me and, and with them as well. But certainly, again, um, thank you for everything. And Brian Fleming, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's been a huge privilege. I love doing this. So thank you. You've been listening to Killcliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.